Galatians chapter 5. Let's stand together as we read some familiar verses to begin. We're going to look up several passages tonight. I would urge you to maybe make note of the references so you can look back over them. You know, um, just to, just to re- kind of reiterate, we've been going over some important, very important uh, lessons about the person of the Holy Spirit. I mean, the only way that we can live this life for Christ, the way He wants it lived, is through a power greater than our own. And many people are failing and frustrated because they can't do it. Well, nobody ever said you could do it, right? It's He he does it in us. And if we're not relying on Him, and if He's not doing it through us, we're just going to be frustrated. And so we talked about the filling of the Spirit, how important it is, what it means to be filled with the Spirit, and the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead dwells within us. And we talked about the leadership of the Spirit of God, how He guides us. And just in the last week, I've heard people kind of give a testimony about how God has led them in different ways. It's a blessing. And uh, we heard about it in Sunday school this morning, teaching uh, in First Thessalonians about, about the leadership of the Spirit of God. So with that in mind, let's read Galatians 5.22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. And they that are Christ's have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not be desirous of vain glory, provoking one another, envying one another. So this passage about the fruit of the Spirit will be a good place to begin Because what we want to think about tonight is this. This will be the thought. The Holy Spirit and godly living. The the Spirit of God, it's the Spirit of God who dwells within the child of God who's able to produce the fruit that God desires in our life. And He is able, amen? And so we're going to think about that. The Holy Spirit and godly living. Father, we thank You for Your Word. Bless as we study it. Lord, help us to receive with meekness the engrafted Word that really is able to save us, change us, deliver us. We thank You for it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So what does that mean when it says the fruit of the Spirit? The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith. What is that? It's the fruit that the Spirit produces. It's not the fruit. It's not you producing love. It's Him producing love in you. And most of us could identify with this. There have been times in, in our life, times in your life, as a Christian, when you're in a situation or you're responding in a situation... And as you do it, you realize this is not you. There's, it's, there's, you're, you're getting some outside help. Have you, you know what I'm saying? And that's really, that's the way God does it. He, does, he, he loves people through us. He has the peace that passes all understanding comes from Him. We talked this morning about Jesus sleeping in a panic, a panic situation when the disciples were fearful for their lives and He's sleeping because there, there's just, there never is any panic in heaven. I, there's panic in my heart sometimes, but there's never any panic in heaven. So it's the fruit that the Spirit produces in the life of the believer. 
It's character. It's the kind of character that's produced in our life as, and by the way, in, this, in the larger context here in Galatians 5, you know, there's a contrast made. Let's just quickly look at that. Look in Galatians 5, go a little bit earlier than that in the passage to verse 19. <coughs> verse 19 says, now the works of the flesh. Now here's the contrast. We looked at how the fruit, the, the, the fruit that, that is produced by the Spirit of God, but here's the fruit, the evidence of the flesh. And notice it lists these things, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, these animosities, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings. That's, that's what the flesh produces. All this tension and drama and, and uh, illicit desires, lustful desires. You know, that's what the flesh can do. That's all the flesh can do. And by the way, that's all we, before we were saved, that's the only, the only nature we had was a sinful nature, right? And so it was just natural to do that. It's natural to use profanity. It's natural to look lustfully. It was natural, you know, to, to be hateful to people, to be unkind, to be rude. That was, that's, the, that's the natural man. Anybody that's lost can do that. But laid beside that, you have the character of Christ, the fruit of the Spirit, love and joy and peace. It's interesting in that passage we just read in, in verse 21 where it says, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and the next three words are underlined in my Bible, and such like. That's not a complete list. He just says these things and other things like these things. That's the, that's the work of the flesh. That is the, that is the way... A person lives who's not saved. You say, how do you know they're not saved? Let's look, look at verse 21 again. Envies, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like, of the which I tell you before, as I have also told you in times past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. He said, this, this is the behavior of people who are not saved. They live in sin. They like to sin. They don't have the Spirit of God in them. They don't have the Spirit of God in them. They just have the flesh. And that's why it goes on in verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit. This is the behavior that ought to be displayed in the life of those who have the Spirit of God. Those who are saved. And I'm not going to dive into each of these different qualities or characteristics. But that word love just in itself. That's agape love. That's, that's the kind of love that Jesus has. That's the love that loves your enemies. That's the love that forgives everyone that's wronged you. That's the love that lays down your life for others. That's, that's the love that's displayed, not because you're a super saint, because you're, not because you learned how to do this. No, it's because the lover lives within you. He loves people through us. This long-suffering, this patience, this meekness, humility. It's all a part of, it's all the package. It's what you get when you get saved. And we're going to talk about this some tonight. The Holy Spirit, how the Holy Spirit uh, plays into this subject of godly living. It's, it's really the result of Jesus living in us. Uh, we're going to come back here to Galatians in a moment. Hold your finger right here in Galatians and go to the left to the book of Romans. We've spent a lot of time in this teaching on Sunday nights in Romans 8. And I want to take another glance at it. 
Romans 8 and verse 9. It says, But you're not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. We had an interesting discussion uh, Wednesday night in our small group. I, I was with the uh, teenage young men. Uh, Brother Gary and I were. And, um, and we, asked the, we were talking about this around the table, asked the question, you know, how do you know the Spirit of God lives in you? That's an interesting question to ask someone, right? How do you know the Spirit of God lives in you? It says here, you're, if so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now, if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he's none of his. If the, if the Spirit of Jesus is not in you, then you're not, you don't belong to him. And if Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. Now, I said we're going to go back to Galatians. Go back, if you would, please, to Galatians, but not to 5, but to 4. Galatians 4. We're talking about the, the behavior of the Spirit of God in a child of God. In Galatians chapter 4 and verse 19, Paul writes, My little children, Galatians 4.19, of whom I travail in birth again until Christ be formed in you. He said, I'm travailing in birth again till Christ be, not till you get not till you get familiar with a lot of rules till Christ be formed in you the word as you know the, you may know the word formed is metamorpho it's like our word metamorphosis metamorphosis is that process of going from a from a insect to a to a larva to a butterfly. It's a transformation. It becomes, it's transformed. Christ be formed in you. It's going from a tadpole to a bullfrog to my plate. <laughs> that's the, that's, that's the, the completed process. It's, it's metamorphosis. It's, it, you, it's changing, in, changing in form. You know, the, it's changing in its characteristics. It's ch- and what is he talking about? Christ being formed in you so that we become more like him, less like we were, more like he is. That's what God's looking that's, that's the process. That's what God is looking for. And, that, and it's the Spirit of God in us that causes this, enables this to happen, literally be changed from one form to another, becoming more like Jesus Christ. Now I want to give you a phrase, two words, um, and I'm going to talk to you about this for a moment. I'm going to call this progressive. Progressive sounds like a bad word, doesn't it? <laughs> progressive sanctification. Progressive means sanctification that's ongoing. Progressive sanct- sanctification, becoming more Christ-like, being transformed, metamorphosis. Progressive tra- uh, sanctification is a, the plan for every Christian. Not just some, not just all of us. That's God's plan for our life. Now, what do we mean by progressive sanctification? It's the process where we're becoming more and more like Christ. More and more holy. More and more like Jesus. Um, Sanctification, the word sanctification means set apart. And sanctification, really, there are three aspects to sanctification. One is what we call uh, positional sanctification. By that it means that we are, we are presently, right now, this moment, if you're saved, God calls you a saint. 
right? A saint is one that's, is a holy person, set apart, set apart. And, and, and you got that the moment you got saved. God set you apart to himself. That's positional. Then there's progressive sanctification. That's what we're going to talk about. And the last part of sanctification would be complete or consummate sanctification, ultimate sanctification, and that's when the job is complete. And when that job is complete, we'll no longer have a sinful nature. We'll, we'll no longer have the ability to be tempted to sin because we're going to be just like Him. We'll, we'll, when we see Him as He is, we shall be like Him. That's, that's a completed project. So you have the initial positional sanctification and then this progressive sanctification and finally this completed sanctification. Now think about this tonight. Which of these three parts of sanctification do we have the most to do with? Is it positional? And the answer is no. Because that's done entirely by God the moment we get saved. We're made new creatures. We're adopted into His family. We're seated with Him in heavenly places the moment we get saved, right? That's positional. It's a done deal. What about ultimate? What, what do we have to do with this ultimate part of salvation? And the answer is nothing. Because that will not be done until we die. And the moment we die, it's going to be finished. It's going to be wrapped up. And when we, res we resurrect with new bodies... At the coming of Christ, we'll have brand new bodies, bodies that cannot sin. I believe they'll be just like Jesus. I believe we can walk through walls and do all kinds of neat stuff. Right? This mortal will put on immortality. We, we will live forever. We'll have a brand new body. What do we have to do with that? Nothing. That's, that's going to happen. This body will be glorified. We will be glorified. But it's that, there's that in-between part progressive sanctification that we have everything to do with. That's the only part of sanctification that we're involved with because that takes place during our life. Go back to Romans if you would please, but not Romans 8. Let's look at Romans chapter 6. As I said, we're going to look up a number of passages because the important thing is not what I think the Bible says. What's important is what the Bible does say. And um, Romans chapter 6, writing here, Paul writing, says, What shall we say then in verse 1? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. We're talking about progressive sanctification. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? No, we're not, we're not to live in sin. That's not God's plan for any Christian to live in sin. Look down a little further to verse 12. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. Don't let, it, don't let it live within you, that you should obey it in the lust thereof. Neither yield your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. Let's skip on down to verse 22. But now being made free from sin and become servants to God, you have your fruit unto holiness and the end everlasting life. See, this is God's plan. I, I, I want to spend some time just sort of driving this home tonight because we need to understand that God has a plan for us while we're in this life. He has a plan for us to be in heaven one day. He has a plan for us not to go to hell. But He has a plan for us in this life. And that, and that plan 
that plan includes a progressive growing closer to Him and being free from sin and living holy lives. That is God's plan. And it's not just revealed in one place. It's revealed and repeated throughout the Bible. And it's for all of His children. Now you would think that a Christian wouldn't have to be convinced of that, but it's, it appears to me that a part of this, um, what I think is a growing apostasy, apostasy being a falling away from the faith that's, that we're seeing in our generation, seeing in our day, that certainly wasn't like this 30 or 40 years ago. And a part of that is people actually, I'm talking about people who claim to be saved, resenting, even resisting or rejecting a call to holiness and to live holy lives and excusing, excusing carnality. You know, I've, I've, you know, I've been saved for more than 40 years. And for 40 years, I've heard preachers crying out for holy living. You know why? Because the Bible calls for that. The Bible calls for that. We're going to see it tonight. Over and over, the Bible calls for holy living. God wants His children to live holy lives. But now I hear voices and I read some, what other preachers are saying and what people print and record what other people are saying, where many preachers are, are acting like, you know, this call for holiness is putting demands on people or trying to put rules on people and those kinds of things. And I'll tell you, it's a, it's a really, uh, I think it's a dilemma. I think a lot of people get caught up in it. And I, th I think I know at least a part of what it is because, you know, sometimes error comes about because of truth that's out of balance. And I've seen this, and, you know, those of you who've been around for a while, where some, some group or some preacher will be saying something and it's really out of, it's, it's too far to the right, and so somebody will react to it and go the other direction. Uh, you know, when people neglect the doctrine of repentance, other people go to an extreme view about repentance. And when, you know what I'm saying? There's like a reaction to one, one thing becomes an error, and it's truth on this subject we're talking about. And I think there's a lack of balance in many circles about the difference between our position and our practice. You know, just because you are declared to be a saint, because God says you are set apart for Him, does not mean you're free to do as you please because you belong to Him. You say, well, people don't believe that. Lots of people believe that. Positionally, in the eyes of God, positionally, if I understand the Scripture, I have been declared holy. I've been declared justified. I have been declared to be a saint, right? And that may seem as surprising to you, but so, so have you. That's our position. I don't have to work for that position. I inherited that position when I got saved. Amen. He made me His own. He, he, he completely set me apart, declared me to be holy because of my position in Christ, sanctified. But that doesn't mean that I don't have a responsibility to live a holy life. Our, our position, our position should impact our practice, not excuse our practice. Does that make sense to you? And I, I'll give you an example. I, 
I received a phone call uh, one day, that's been a year or so ago, from a friend of mine in another state and just wanting some counsel, wanting some clarification because of what was being taught in their church by their pastor. And what their pastor was teaching them, and by the way, this is not just a novelty to one church. There's, I've heard of this several places. Their, their pastor was teaching them, you don't have to confess your sin if you're saved. If you're saved, you don't have to confess your sin because if you're saved, then you're, all your sins are forgiven, right? Past, present, and future. In Jesus Christ, our sins have been forgiven. You don't have to confess your sin. And these people, this person in the church and other families in the church were a little bit uh, disturbed by that. And positionally, we are forgiven of our sins. But scripturally, it says in 1 John 1, 9, right, we're to confess, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. So here's a case where a person puts so much emphasis on their position, they, they're neglecting the practice, which is that we need to be dealing with our sin. Go with me, if you would, please, to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. This is where the Antioch class will be next Sunday. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. I want to read a few verses, but I want you to be thinking about this now again, what, let's, let's go back to the, the, the primary message tonight is this. The Holy Spirit is within us to help us to live godly lives. That's the point of the message. He's, he's in us to help us live, and He's in us to, to do other things too, but to help us live godly lives. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 1. Furthermore then, we beseech you, brethren, and exhort you by the Lord Jesus, that as you've received of us how you ought to walk, and to please God, so you would abound more and more. Now I want to pause there for a moment, because it seems like some people feel like that really it's not important that we please God, because we're already pleasing to God. God's already accepted us. God's already adopted us. So is it possible that we can be pleasing to God? And the answer to that is it says right here, you're to live in such a way that God is pleased with the way you're living your life. Right? That you would walk and please God so you would abound more and more. You would abound and abound in this direction of doing what? Being, trying to live your life in such a way that you're going to please God by your attitude, by your decisions, by the way you respond in different situations. And he goes on and talks about this even further. Let's just read through quickly. For you know what commandments we gave you by the Lord Jesus. For this is, the, this is the will of God, even your sanctification, that you should abstain from fornication. God wants us to live holy lives. That every one of you should know how to possess his vessel in sanctification and honor, not in the lust of concupiscence, even as the Gentiles which know not God, that no man go beyond and defraud his brother in any matter, because that the Lord is the avenger of all such, as, you, as we have, also, have forewarned you and testified. Verse 7. I don't know how it can be stated any clearer. For God hath not called us unto uncleanness, but unto holiness. God's called us to live 
holy lives. Now verse 8 is a very interesting verse. He, he therefore, we know it's talking about what he's just been talking about. He therefore that despiseth, despiseth not man but God, who hath also given unto us his Holy Spirit. What is he saying? Those who, this call to sanctification, to holy living, he that despises that teaching, and by the way, there are a lot of people that despise that teaching, even professing Christians. Oh, that's just legalistic. You know, that doesn't matter. You know, you're, you're accepted in the beloved. It doesn't matter how you live. That's foolishness. He that despiseth, verse 8, is not despising man but God. When a person rejects the preaching for holiness, he's not rejecting the preacher. He's rejecting God. Because God is calling us. And look at the last part of verse 8. Who has also given unto us His Holy Spirit. He gave us the Holy Spirit that we might live godly lives. Now why? Why would... And again, I'm coming to you from, from the position of a person who's been in the faith for more than 40 years and has watched things happen. And you know... In 40 years, a lot of popular things come and go. Messages and emphasis, and there's just lots of them. And you may or may not know that. A lot of people wouldn't, but I'm telling you, it's, it's always, that's why Paul called it this, wind, the wind of doctrine. Don't be blown about by every wind of doctrine that comes along. And there are a lot of those winds of doctrine that blow through us, blow, roll around us. So my question is, why would a person who's a Christian be attracted to that? Why would a person who's a Christian be attracted to a message or a messenger that belittles separation, that belittles sanctification, that, that make, minimizes holy living? And I, I can only think of two reasons. Number one, first of all, they're not saved because it's the Spirit of God. It's the, there's a Spirit within the child of God that is urging us to live holy lives. Maybe they're not saved. Or maybe it's just their flesh. I mean, if, the, if, if a person wanted to, they could go and find a church that would just basically let them live as they please and feel good about it. Right? Just Google. You'll find one somewhere, I'm sure. But is that really what we want? Do we want the flesh to be satisfied? The Bible says there's no good thing that dwells within me that is within my flesh. And that's why it talks about this spiritual battle, the spiritual struggle, the flesh versus the spirit. I read a quote, I heard a quote uh, recently by a popular pastor. I'm, gonna just, I'm just going to read the quote. This is what it says. Now think about these words. God is not in a hurry to fix us. Our behavior is not his first priority. We are his first priority. Loving us, knowing us, affirming us, protecting us, affirming us, making us feel good about ourselves. Protecting us, this is his top goal and main concern. Now, there's truth in that statement. There is truth in that statement. But there's also error. And... It includes this insinuation that the way that we live doesn't really matter to God that much. 
because he's really just interested in us. But that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible wants us more and more to be pleasing to him. The Bible wants us more and more to be yielded to him and, and surrendered to him. And that's the way it is sometimes. It's not a, a blatant just absence of truth. It's a measure of truth. But this is, but I come back to this thing. If the Spirit of God is in us, He wants us to live holy lives. Um, you've probably heard this term, or maybe you have, but um, years ago there was a, a well-known author, was a pastor of a church and a president of a college, um, who wrote a book called The Grace Awakening. Maybe you've heard of that book. And, and it's, like, it's like how people today are just really coming to understand what grace means. And some people have labeled the extreme view of that as a hyper-grace position. And what it does, basically, it puts such an exaggerated emphasis on grace. We are in grace. It is the grace of God. But it ignores the responsibility to live holy lives. Like grace... Grace gives you the freedom not to have to be bothered with holy living. That's not taught in the Bible. Amen. That's not taught in the Bible. That the Holy Spirit within us urges us to live a holy life. Are you in uh, 1 Thessalonians still? Would you go to the right to, a bit to the book of Titus? Titus, I want to look at a couple more passages. Titus Chapter 2. By the way, I love the grace of God. I love singing about the grace of God. I love studying about the grace of God. We are what we are by the grace of God. For by grace you saved through faith, that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. I thank God that it's all of grace. Amen? Amen. So Paul writes to Titus about the grace of God. And he says in Titus chapter 2 and verse 11, For the grace of God that bringeth salvation, hath appeared to all men. Aren't you glad for that? The grace of God that brings salvation. We're not saved by our works. Not by any of our works. Not by all of our works. Not by baptism. Not by church membership. Not by reformed living. We're saved by the grace of God. That's not the end of the sentence there in verse 11. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men. There's a comma. Notice what he says in verse 12. Teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. Grace, the grace of God is not an excuse, a license to do as we please. Right? The same grace that's in us teaches us stuff. And it teaches us to live holy lives. The sentence continues in verse 13. Looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us, thank You, Lord, that He might redeem us from all iniquity, and purify unto himself a peculiar people zealous of good works. These things speak and exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no man despise thee, Paul writes to Titus. That's the grace of God, that we're to live godly lives. That's what verse 12 says, that we would live godly lives in this present world. 
He wants us to be purified. He wants us to be, and, and that's a process. It's progressive sanctification. It's a process. And He lives within us to help us. And if, um, just look at it like this. I want to especially address this to young people. Young people, if the only reprimand you ever get for the way you're speaking and acting and living is from the outside, from your parents or your youth director or some Sunday school teacher. If the only pressure you ever get is from the outside to change to a better way of living, then you're missing the most important component. And that's the Spirit of God who lives within us. Who lives within us to reprimand us, to correct us, to reprove us. You know, a person, if they, would choose, if they want to choose this lifestyle, I'm, not, I'm kind of conflicted about if it's even possible, but if a person wants to say, I'm just going to reject the clear teachings of Scripture as far as dedication and sacrifice and holy living and separation are concerned, and I just want to be a spiritual sloth. You know what I'm saying? Just lazy spiritually. If a person could do that, that's, a, that's one thing. But don't, don't ever do it and sort of masquerade under the banner of spiritual liberty because that's not spiritual liberty. Call it what it is. Call it carnality. Call it selfishness. Call it spiritual laziness. But, but don't be so delusional and I'm saying this, I don't think anybody here would think this way, but I hear this stuff. Don't be so delusional to believe that God is pleased when you just live a selfish life. God is not pleased with that. God is not pleased when we reject His call from within and from His Scripture to live holy lives. Let me give you another quote from a popular pastor. Sometimes we treat God like an antique chair. When in fact, God is more like an Ikea couch. <laughs> it's interesting, isn't it? This is theologically deep. You might as well, we're digging deep now. How many of y'all already know what Ikea is? Ikea is a, it's a furniture store, basically a place where you can get all kinds of things. You can put them together in there. Very common, very, very common. It's, it's a great atmosphere. There's one in St. Louis. And uh, make it, a field trip for you and your wife to go to. He goes on and says this though. In terms of relationship, we often treat God more like an expensive antique when He invites us to treat Him like an Ikea couch. And what he's in clearly saying is we need, we, need to, we need to be more casual when we come to God. We need to, we need to, we, God doesn't want us to come to Him and treat Him like He's some kind of a, it's, to me it's a lessening the respectful view of God that is taught throughout the Bible. Amen. Old Testament, you could find it from the book of Genesis all the way to the book of Revelation. People falling on their face before God. People taking their shoes off because they're on holy ground. And, and John, John spelled it out in the book of Revelation like this. I, when I saw him, I fell at his face, 
though dead. I fell at his feet like I was dead. He didn't, it's, you know, people want this idea where you can just be, you know, just come before God anyway, anyhow. God doesn't care. Be casual. We shouldn't exalt God. I'm telling you, that's far into the Word of God. Amen. I'm just telling you what the Bible says. Find, find, find you a Bible reference, a Bible sermon on how God encourages us to treat Him with less respect. I don't think you can find it. It's not in there. And that's a part of this attempt to, to promote a casual, less respectful view of God. I think it's harmful. I think it's contradictory to the whole counsel of God. Let's go to one last passage. Go to the right. And that is uh, 1 Peter. 1 Peter. Just in case you haven't noticed, 1 Peter's in the New Testament. This is... This is not just Old Testament theology. This is the Bible. By the way, God hasn't changed. Amen. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. I am the Lord. I change not. But look what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 14. As obedient children, 1 Peter 1, 14, not, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lusts in your ignorance, he, didn't, he doesn't flatter us about the way we used to live and think. He, in your ignorance, you live like this. You didn't know any better. In your former lust, living like the world. The things of the world, the cares of the world, the conversations of the world. Don't fashion yourself after that. Look in verse 15. But as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy. In all manner of conversation. All manner of conversation means all, all your lifestyle, all of your con every, every part of your life. Your conversation is not just the words you use, but it is the words you use. It's not just the words you use. It's your lifestyle, it's your attitude, it's your conversations, it's the way you live your life. And how does, what does he say? As he which has called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation. You know, when I read that, I'm thinking that, that requires a lot, right? It requires something that I don't have in and of myself. But there's someone living within the child of God who is holy, who doesn't want to sin, who cannot sin, who gives us power over sin and temptation. But as he would, verse 15 again, but he's which has called you as holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation because it is written... Now, this is an Old Testament quote from the book of Leviticus. Peter is calling upon the Old Testament, but he's, but he's not saying that was old and this is new and that's not relevant. No, he says, it is written, be ye holy, for I am holy. Now, what does the word holy mean? It means to be set apart, to be separated. <clears throat> Sometimes when people hear the word separation, they only think of rules. And there is a difference between, there is a difference between rule, rules and godliness. We're talking this message about the Holy Spirit and godly living. R rules sometimes are mistaken for godliness. Sometimes people think rules make you godly, but they don't. Rules don't make a person godly. Just because you have rules does not mean you're a godly person. 
Again, I think some of this is a reaction to judgmentalism. And there's been a lot of that. I mean, there is, it exists. And I, that may not be the right word for it. Some people call it pharisaicalism. There's a lot of that. And you know what that is? That's putting more emphasis on the external than on the internal. More emphasis on the way you cut your hair and the way you dress than on what's on the inside of you. And I, that is an error. It is wrong. And it does happen. But just because it happens, that does not give anybody the license to let the pendulum swing way the other way where we act like it doesn't matter what we look like on the outside or it doesn't matter how we live our lives. That's just as wrong. Nowhere in the Bible are we admonished to correct an error by advocating an error in the other direction. The Spirit-filled life produces godliness. Right? And by the way, if I'm going to be a godly person, then I'm going to be concerned with how that godliness is reflected in every area of my life. In the music I listen to, in the friends that I associate with, in the way that I present myself, every, the way you do a, a job on your, before your employer, every area, the way you are in your home, your family, the way you are for your children, the way you are toward your parents. Your godliness, I'm thinking of the passage where Paul said to Timothy, a bodily exercise profiteth little, but godliness is profitable unto all things. Godliness will, will profit your life in every single area of your life. So rules are not the answer. External behavior is not the goal in itself. Godliness is the goal, and the Spirit of God lives within us to help us. The Spirit-filled life produces godliness. It doesn't... Nowhere does it produce spiritual laziness. Nowhere does it produce, nowhere does it say the Spirit of God will help us to be dismissive about standards and separation and holy living. Nowhere do you see that. The Spirit of God within us calls us from within to live holy lives, to conduct ourselves in a way that pleases Him. And if you're sitting here tonight and you're thinking, I just don't think any of that pertains to me. Then let me give you one last thing. It begins at salvation. It starts when a person is truly born again of the Spirit of God. Because the moment you're converted, the Holy Spirit moves within you. The one who is leading us, calling us, admonishing us, urging us to live holy lives. And every one of us, including me, every one of us at some time in our life, as Christians, we've had someone on the outside, some parent, some friend, some pastor, some other spiritual a leader. All of us have had someone, maybe through reading, maybe through reading a book, maybe through reading the scripture, maybe through going to a conference. All of us have had someone on the outside who've urged us, maybe not personally, maybe just in a group, but though it's, though it's a, a, a corporate setting like this, the Spirit of God can speak to a person's heart and deal with a person's heart and say, this is for you. You need to take this seriously. All of us have had those outside voices that have urged us to live holy lives. But for every Christian, there's an inside presence urging us to turn away from our sin, 
urging us to humble ourselves, urging us to yield ourselves completely to God, urging us on to a life of holiness and godliness that we might be pleasing to God. That's the Spirit of God inside of us. And if you're here and you, you don't, if you can't relate to that, if you that never has happened to me, that never happens to me. I'm always getting it from mom or dad or the preacher or somebody else, but no one ever on the inside of me deals with me about my sin. Then you ought to ask yourself, am I truly born again? Does the Spirit of God live within me? Because He wants us to live godly lives. Amen?